Welcome to the Gloria Purvis Podcast, where we talk about the issues in the Catholic Church and in society that matter to you and to me. And I'm glad you're here to have that conversation with me. My guest today is Dana Sweeney. Dana Sweeney is a statewide organizer at the Alabama Appleseed Center for Law and Justice. Alabama Appleseed Center is a nonprofit organization that works to achieve justice and equity for all Alabamians. And what does that mean? Well, it's the state's only nonpartisan research and advocacy organization that works exclusively on justice system reform in Alabama, focusing on issues like mass incarceration, economic and racial justice, and government accountability. And I wanted to talk to Dana because I actually met him when I was in Montgomery, Alabama. And, you know, small world story, I was in Alabama to visit the Equal Justice Initiative. And as a part of that trip, we visited Resurrection Parish, whose pastor is Father Manuel Williams, who was a previous guest on the Gloria Purvis podcast, Small World. And we know our faith calls us to justice. What is justice, according to us by Catholics? That people receive what they deserve. And I wanted to also talk to Dana because I'm like, well, what does getting justice for people look like? And you know what? Dana talks to us about this work, and he does this work among a number of people, but also among rural white communities in Alabama. I mean, we talk about so many things that I think probably people aren't even aware of that are examples of systemic injustice today. For example, we talk about septic failures in the Black Belt of Alabama. We talk about the symbolic and material examples of white supremacy. So, for example, we talk about the State House having a huge statue of the president of the Confederacy, Jefferson Davis. How is that a symbol of white supremacy? Well, we got to think about what the Confederacy was. It was basically some states that committed treason, broke away from the United States, just so they would have the right to own other human beings. And in particular, those human beings were people of African descent, were Black people. And embedded in this Confederacy was the idea of white supremacy, that white people should be over and above everything, and Black people weren't even human. And for the state, to this day, in 2022, to memorialize Jefferson Davis, not as something, oh, that we're ashamed of, but as a proud aspect of Alabama history, the Confederacy being something to be proud of, well, that sends a message. That sends a message to everyone that comes and looks at that statue. And it is a message of white supremacy. We also talk about incarceration rates and the criminalization of poverty. And what do we do when we're confronted with white supremacy or unjust laws and inequity? A lot of people are tempted to rage, rage, rage. And I get that. But we hear from Dana that what actually works is the ministry of presence. I can't wait for you to listen to this conversation. I think it's a good one and gives us a lot to meditate on and think about how we too can get involved in doing works of mercy and helping bring a more just society. The Gloria Purvis Podcast is a production of America Media, where real, honest conversations are happening on the most important issues at the intersection of the church and the world. And that's unique. You may not agree with everything we publish or even everything we talk about on this podcast. You know what? That's okay. That's healthy. 
We need to listen to each other and be open to different ideas and perspectives. So if this podcast is meaningful to you, please support it by getting a digital subscription to America. How do you do that? Go to americamagazine.org slash subscribe and sign up today. The link is in the show notes. Stick around. My conversation with Dana Sweeney is up next. Dana, welcome to the Gloria Purvis podcast. So glad you could join me. Thank you so much for the invitation. It's such an honor to be here. Oh, thank you. You know, I am really curious as to how you first became interested in this kind of community organizing and advocacy work. Yes. Well, um, it certainly wasn't part of my original plan. I'll say that. (laughs) I grew up in Camden County, Georgia, in a small town sort of nestled down in the salt marshes of the southern part of the state in a fairly insular, pretty conservative, small town. Mm. And for me, my biggest dream, to be honest, was to get out, to go as far away as possible. Growing up where I did, I didn't always feel like I fit in. And so I had this vision of going to college, but I wasn't sure how I was going to afford it. And I was very, very fortunate to get a scholarship to the University of Alabama, which Fulfilled my dream of wanting to go to college, but obviously not my dream of wanting to move far away out of the Deep South. And it wasn't until some really formative experiences I had in Tuscaloosa at the University of Alabama that I really came around to realizing that my work is here in this place with the communities and people that I love, not somewhere far away. Hmm. So for our listeners that may not even understand what it is that you do, what does your job look like? Yes. So I am Alabama Appleseed's statewide organizer. And so what it comes down to, right, is that there are a lot of really harsh realities across the state of Alabama that are produced Mm. by harsh laws we have. And so the work that we do is documenting the harms that are caused by laws on the books here in Alabama, and then working with people around the state to advocate for change. So in short, My job is to get in the car and drive to every far-flung, (laughs) crisscrossed part of Alabama, (laughs) talking to people about what our hopes are for the future for this place. Hmm. What are people's hopes when you go out there and talk with them and people in the community? What are their hopes? You know, I spend a lot of time, I would say most of my time, in small towns and rural communities in Alabama doing this work. And I think it would probably surprise a lot of people to find out that there is real hope and real appetite for something different in those parts of the state. Mm. When I talk to people about what their hopes are for the state, often it goes straight to problem solving by identifying the things that aren't working now. Right. You know, So for a lot of people in rural areas, the first thing that will come up is health care. Alabama is one of 12 states that hasn't expanded Medicaid. And there are thousands and thousands of people in the state who have no health insurance at all. Meanwhile, we've had, goodness, close to a dozen rural hospitals close in the last decade. So there are lots of people, you know, where if you get sick and you call an ambulance, it's going to be an hour before one gets there. And then an hour before you can get to somewhere where medical help is provided. You know, people quickly identify that. People quickly identify the lack of economic opportunity the lack of opportunity to get a good education in rural parts of the state, and frequently identify the vast impacts of Alabama's system of mass incarceration 
which reaches into every community across the state. Mm. People are pretty quick to identify, you know, we have needs that aren't met and we pay taxes and we think that our needs and the needs of our neighbors should be met and that it shouldn't be this hard. Right. And once we start talking about that, the conversation turns to concrete ways we can make it better by changing things at the state house. So we know Alabama is like one of the poorest states in the nation. It has one of the highest rates of mass incarceration, and it also has a large Black population. Mm -hmm. Do you deal with the Black population and the white population much in your work in going out to rural Alabama? Yes, I do. I visit predominantly white communities, predominantly Black communities in rural parts of the state. And the needs often look different in these different parts of rural Alabama. Could you give a few examples of what are the different needs? Yeah. So I would say, well, Alabama often, I think, is viewed from the outside as a pretty homogenous state or a pretty flat state, I would think, culturally flat. There are a lot of sub-regions of the state, I would say, with distinct histories, cultures, and challenges. One region in particular in Alabama is called the Black Belt. It is a region of the state that stretches across the center. If you can think all the way from the Mississippi border across through Selma and Montgomery, all the way over to Georgia's border. So it's originally called the Black Belt because of the incredibly rich, fertile soil. Some of the best agricultural soil anywhere on the planet is in central Alabama. And so correspondingly, the Black Belt was the plantation belt of the state. Yeah. It is the primary seat of enslavement in Alabama. And fast forward from that time of the amassing of immense wealth by white landowners who enslaved Black people in Alabama, fast forward to the present, and this region has gone from the most wealthy to the poorest region of the state. And in fact, it is one of the poorest areas in the entire United States. And the reason for that is so connected to our history, right? After emancipation, the refusal to invest in any reparations for Black people in the South who had been enslaved, the refusal to allow for the building of political power once Reconstruction was ended. And you come into the present and we see the living legacy of those decisions the United States has made in the fact that the Black Belt has huge issues with septic infrastructure. This, I'm sure a lot of listeners, I hope a lot of listeners may have heard about this issue, but across central Alabama, there are huge issues with waste disposal. And so central Alabama is actually a hotspot for various subtropical diseases that have long been thought to be eradicated in the United States. They're here because we have so systemically disinvested from communities in the Black Belt region such that these problems exist at that scale today. So septic systems aren't even reliable, basically, it sounds no. like, in that area. Wow. I mean, true. So what does organizing look like for this group today in the Black Belt? Yeah, across the Black Belt, there are a number of amazing activists and organizations that have responded at the grassroots level to try to you know, draw federal attention to the issue, to draw funding for you know, the installation and repair of environments, installation of septic systems, I should say. The Black Belt Citizens for Health and Justice is one group that's based in Uniontown, Alabama, in Perry County, so over on the western side of the state, who have been organizing for years. 
to address the fact that there are open fields of untreated waste that are causing people to be sick. And they have brought members of Congress and U.S. senators and you know, presidential hopefuls to Perry County, Alabama, to demonstrate, you know, we're the wealthiest country in the world. But in Alabama, like we don't have septic infrastructure. Oh, my goodness. Another I would really encourage anyone who's who's interested in learning more about this. Catherine Flowers published a book called Waste, and she has for decades been leading in the work to draw attention to the crisis of septic infrastructure in the Black Belt region of Alabama and to draw funding for repair. Wow. I mean, this is shocking to hear because you don't think this would be something that would be an issue anywhere in the United States. And yet it's right here in the Black Belt and how you tied that to the refusal to invest, the resistance to the freedom and equality of enslaved people has led to this kind of thing today. Wow, that's that's ooh, that's hard. That's hard, but this is reality. And yeah. I'm sure there are many other things as well. You know, I was thinking about mass incarceration and how does it affect these communities? Criminalization of poverty. You know, we hear that term. What does that mean, maybe? Before we get into mass incarceration, or maybe this leads into it, but talking about what is criminalization of poverty? What does that mean? Give us some examples. Yeah. The way that we look at things, and I'll build to a definition of criminalization of poverty. Sure. Alabama is the sixth poorest state in the country. And we also have some of the harshest criminal punishment laws in the country. And where those two realities about Alabama crash together, we see an immense amount of harm. These are two deeply, deeply connected realities in our state. And, you know, when we think about why is Alabama the poorest state, it's not because people in Alabama are lazier than anybody else or don't work as hard. When we talk about the fact that we have these incredibly harsh laws, we talk about the fact that Alabama has a higher rate of incarceration than virtually any other legal jurisdiction on the planet. It's not because people in Alabama are inherently more dangerous than anyone else in the world. All of these things are produced by our history and by the laws that we have now that we are allowing to continue to perpetuate these conditions. Mm. So a concrete example of this, keeping it as sort of basic as you can, would be traffic tickets, right? Mm. So in Alabama, you get pulled over, you get a traffic ticket for whatever it is. You know, you're going a couple miles over, you've got a taillight that's not working, you get pulled over and you get a traffic ticket. If you are someone who is middle class or up wealthy enough, your experience is it's going to be a headache. You're going to roll your eyes and grit your teeth and you're going to pay your traffic ticket and that will be the end of it. But if you are someone who gets a traffic ticket, let's say, you know, you get a $300 traffic ticket and you are living paycheck to paycheck, you're trying to make do, if you can't afford to pay off that $300 ticket in Alabama, the state of Alabama is going to automatically suspend your driver's license for the unpaid debt. And you can imagine what the consequences of this would be, right? So Alabama, it's a pretty rural state. Yeah, We're not known for our robust system of public transportation. Most places in Alabama don't have any public transportation. And so if you can't drive How are you going to get to the grocery store, to church, to school, to your doctor's appointment? I mean, earlier in the conversation, I mentioned sometimes a hospital or a doctor is three counties away. 
Wow. How are you going to live? Right. And so, right, the choice that people make is people continue to drive because you don't have an alternative, right? So I can't afford to pay my ticket. My license has been suspended. I have to drive in order to live in this state. Right. But now the next time I get pulled over, I'm going to get another ticket and a ticket for driving on a suspended license. If I get summoned to court over my inability to pay and I don't show up, there's going to be a warrant issued for my arrest and I'm going to be jailed. If I'm jailed because of an unpaid traffic ticket, I might lose my job because I didn't show up to work. I might lose my kids because I didn't have time to arrange childcare. This is just one example of how people who are poor in Alabama experience a vastly different criminal justice system than people who have greater means. The cascading effect of that one ticket. And I was thinking about, well, how does that work in terms of when you are brought in front of a judge? You know, can you even afford a lawyer? What happens if you can't afford a lawyer? Does Alabama provide public defenders? So (laughs) complicated story, but long story short, no. There are lots of places in Alabama where, you know, there is not a formal public defender system like you might expect in other parts of the country. And particularly in these sorts of traffic cases, you know, this is in civil court, not criminal court. And so most people who are summoned to court because they haven't been able to pay a traffic ticket are just showing up with the clothes on their back, no lawyer in sight. Right. A lot of the work that we do at Appleseed is gathering community input and experiences to document the problems. And so for one example, on this subject, in 2018, we traveled around the state and we surveyed about 1,000 people in 41 of the state's 67 counties about their experiences with court debt and fines and fees. And of the people who had only ever gotten traffic tickets... We found that about half had been jailed over not being able to pay a traffic ticket. We found that almost one in three, knowing that incarceration was a likely outcome for them if they weren't able to get the money to pay off these tickets, we found that about one in three people whose only offense ever had been a traffic ticket turned to things like stealing or trying to sell drugs We had a number of people report that they engaged in sex work just to get the money to pay off traffic tickets so that they wouldn't be jailed. The collateral consequences are really far-reaching. In 2022, I mean, I'm thinking, this is really, what you're doing is incredible. Why do you think the documentation is important and how does doing that help challenge these kinds of inequalities? Yeah. The thing about Alabama, right, as frankly, as poor as this state is, we all know these problems exist. Mm. We all know these problems exist. But unless we are able to make it irrefutable on paper, we are not going to succeed in persuading and pressuring lawmakers to do something about it. The fact of the matter is, just about everyone in our state legislature are the type of person who could afford to pay off a traffic ticket, Uh you know? And the people who they socialize with, their peers, are generally people who could afford to pay a traffic ticket. And so, you know, you hear these stories in Alabama because they are pervasive, they surround us, but I think it becomes very easy for lawmakers to hear a story about that, to hear a story about someone who was jailed because they couldn't afford to pay a traffic ticket and to say, oh, that's terrible, but, you know, 
sounds pretty crazy to me. I'm sure that doesn't happen very often. Right. It's not until we have data documenting that a thousand people in 41 counties have had this same experience and they're not alone. And I was thinking about the one situation I know that Appleseed had helped bring some justice is, okay, let me set the background and you correct me on these if facts if I'm wrong, uh, Dana. But it was the case that sheriffs could underfeed prisoners in their jails and pocket the money from the food that wasn't, the money that was supposed to be spent on the food, whatever excess money was left over by underfeeding the people in the jail, that the sheriffs could pocket that. I just thought that was wild. So it's two things that I thought of when I saw about that. Well, they'd have an interest in getting as many people as possible in jail to increase that food budget and then could not feed them sufficient, you know, what they needed daily and then pocket a whole lot of money for themselves. And that was absolutely legal. And Appleseed helped stop that clearly unjust practice. And I imagine a lot of data was collected to do that. Yes, I'm very happy to report that that is a great example of our model of change working. For decades, it was perfectly legal under state law in Alabama for sheriffs of county jails to take money that had been allocated by the state to feed people in the jail and to personally pocket it, to take that money and deposit it into their personal bank accounts. We would have people calling us when this was still happening all the time calling us up on our office phone and telling us like, please, what can I do? Because I have a loved one who is in X or Y or Z county jail who's starving. This is like 2017, you know, this is only a couple of years ago. And so, you know, we hear all of these things. We know this is going on, but until we make it unavoidable, until we have all of the information amassed and vetted and confront lawmakers with this reality. Only then are we able to see change. One step forward. You know, I have to wonder with examples like that and with the refusal of recognizing the equality and freedom of Black people from the time of slavery ended, could you help people understand or maybe how do we still see, I'll just call it, white supremacy operating today in Alabama? Oh my goodness white supremacy is still at the core of most things that the state of Alabama does. And that too is a reality that I don't think many of our elected leaders have sat with or reckoned with or even acknowledged. Let me ask this because maybe there's some people listening saying, well, what do you mean by white supremacy? Yeah. So white supremacy, as I would define it, would be the pervasive operative ideology that privileges and elevates white Alabamians and grants opportunity to white Alabamians that is denied to everybody else, and specifically in Alabama, black Alabamians. I think there are, you know, there are lots of ways that we see this reflected in Alabama, all of which are important, some of which are symbolic and some of which are material, you know, I mean, symbolically at the the Capitol, the Alabama state Capitol here in Montgomery, when you walk up the steps, you are towered over by a giant statue of Jefferson Davis with outstretched arms as recently as this past legislative session, which wrapped up a couple of days ago. But it's important to recognize, right, that it's not just symbolic, but material as well. There's not good state-specific data about wealth inequality 
but even just looking at some of the national statistics, right? Like, so you've got your income, which is what comes in your paycheck. Um, that's a measure a lot of people are familiar with. Measuring wealth is the total amount of your assets, you know, everything you own, all the money you have, all the property you own, minus the debts that you owe. And when you look at median wealth by race in the United States today, it's about $100,000 for white Americans and less than 20000 for black Americans. Yeah. I mean, there's a material gulf in the kinds of resources that people have in this country by race. And that is the result of our laws over generations of successive from Jim Crow to redlining to the denial of entry into institutions of higher learning, like the University of Alabama, the denial of entry into higher earning professions. There's just a long sequential history that builds straight out of slavery in the Black Belt to the present day that has produced this massive inequality. We'll be right back. Dana, you know, to me, I'm following all the breadcrumbs you're dropping. But I'm wondering, what are these conversations like? Or how do, since you work also with the rural white community in Alabama, how do they respond? You know, how are they receiving this information? How do they respond to when you come out and try to help them understand what is going on in the state? How do they respond to this? Yeah, that is maybe the question, right? I think my experience has been that these conversations only become possible through relationship. One of the reasons I'm in this work now is the recognition that I am a white man from a small town mm -hmm. in the Deep South. And that means there are a lot of spaces and rooms that I can get into that a lot of other people can't. And so when it comes to these kinds of conversations in rural, predominantly white conservative communities, mm -hmm. it looks like relationship building and it's very slow. I want to get to know somebody first. I want to hear about their life. I want to hear about their community, what their experience has been, the challenges that they see. And then when we start talking about these issues, it's really interesting because a consistent pattern, I would say, that we have found in all of our community-based research has been that these bad laws are terrible for everybody yes. and produce immense amounts of harm for everybody, including white Alabamians who do not have wealth. And of course, there is a huge racist disproportionate impact experienced by Black communities in Alabama acknowledging that. It's also very terrible. A lot of these laws criminalizing poverty are terrible for white people in Alabama too. And mm -hmm. so the ways that these conversations often go are, you know, building a relationship, treating people respectfully, hearing out what their experiences have been, and then talking about some of the work that we do and pointing towards you are not alone in experiencing this. And here, let's look at this data together. We've done a lot of work on payday lending in Alabama. Mm, gosh. For people who aren't familiar with these types of loans, they are storefront consumer loans. So they're not even legal in all states. So depending on where you're listening from, your state might not even have them. Right. But you drive around and in uh, sort of poorer parts of town in Alabama, you see storefront, they say quick access to cash, fast money now. You come in, you're $300 short on rent this month, you're going to get evicted. You need to find money quickly. And these stores are right around the corner. And you go in, 
and they make it really easy. They say, you know, don't worry about it. Like we've got you covered. Here's $300 on the table now. Just sign here and it's yours. And what I think a lot of people who are having to make quick compromised choices often miss is that in Alabama, these loans have an annualized percentage rate, APR, of 456% APR. How can you ever pay that back? Often people don't. They get caught into debt traps. But this it's an example, right? It does not matter what community in Alabama I go into. When we start talking about this, and I, I'll often do a guessing game with people, you know, I'll say, you know, here's the average APR for a credit card. You know, here's the average APR for a mortgage. Mm-hmm. What would you guess? What would you guess the APR is on payday loans? And people will often try to make like an outrageous guess. They'll be like, it's probably something crazy, like 60%. Yeah, <laughs> try again. And when, right? Yeah, and when we do pull the curtain and there's the big reveal that it's 456%, like I have not yet encountered anyone in Alabama who hears that and thinks that's all right. Yes. And then by inviting people into this work together, by organizing people and building power, we start to introduce people who might never have met before, who can start sharing experiences. And we can start seeing, just observing, you know, the disparate impact that some of these laws have. Those are the conversations that I have found to be powerful. I'm curious. I mean, I know you're Catholic, so I'm wondering, and I also think it's very brave what you do, by the way. How does your faith, like, inform going in and being able to develop these relationships? Yeah, my faith is central to the work that I do. It's very rarely at the forefront, but like on a personal level, it's always present. Yeah. Growing up Catholic, some of the things that have left the greatest impression on me are the emphasis on doing works, the emphasis on bearing witness, and the emphasis on the complete body of Christ. One of the things that I think was instructive for me was in my parish, in my church, there was always an emphasis, you know, that we are the hands and the feet, we're the body of Christ, and it is through our works, it is through the way we move and act in the world that we express our faith. That, to me, was incredibly formative. Similarly, um, there was a, a big emphasis placed on what was described to me as the ministry of presence. The ministry of presence being that, you know, particularly in the world that we live in now, it can be an act of service and an act of mercy just to sit with someone and listen and to ask and to care what is happening in their life. There's often uh, a sense of like excitement and disbelief that I encounter that someone from Montgomery who does advocacy, who does stuff at the state house, that such a person would like bother to be here, you know, would bother to come to a small town in the Black Belt or a small town in the Appalachian foothills or on the Gulf Coast and take the time to sit and just ask, you know, like, how is it going here? You know, like what hurts here? That idea of a ministry of presence or the importance of just bearing witness, I think itself is so powerful. Mm -hmm. And it's something that I feel is core to the work that I do in this relationship building where, you know, I am frequently not on the same page as people who I'm meeting in these communities about worldview or things that I would like to see happen 
Mm-hmm. But this, yeah, this recognition that like the body of Christ includes people who disagree with me. <laughs> and it's my obligation to care for and love them as well and to sit with them and be with them. Oh, that feels yeah. very central to my organizing work. Oh, wow, Dana, that is incredible. That is spot on for what we're supposed to be doing as believers, as Catholics. And thank you for sharing so much of yourself, of the work that you do, and shining a light on these communities in Alabama for many of my listeners, and just giving us a small glimpse into some of the struggles that people deal with and how having a ministry of presence can help change things. Firstly, in how people see themselves and recognizing somebody does care. And secondly, in collecting the raw information that needs to be presented to convince, cajole, shame, whatever it is, (laughs) the people in power to do right by these communities. Thank you so much for all that you're doing, Dana. And it was just, it's been incredible to be able to talk with you and hear your witness and testimony. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for the invitation to be here. I'm so glad you're tuning into the Gloria Purvis podcast and journeying with me through these important and, well, sometimes challenging conversations. As we near the end of our first podcast season, we would love to hear your feedback on the show. Please take a minute to chime in on our listener survey. We want to hear what you enjoyed, what challenged you, and what you'd like to hear about in future episodes. The link to the survey is in the show notes. And as always, if you've enjoyed listening to this episode, please share it with a friend or family member. By the way, you can follow me on Twitter at Gloria underscore Purvis and on Instagram at I am Gloria Purvis. The Gloria Purvis podcast is a production of America Media. It's produced by Maggie Van Dorn and it's engineered by Frank Tucson. You can learn more about America Media at americamagazine.org. We'll see you next time.